0: Mel Kettle and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Hello, I'm sitting in my Melbourne apartment again. I'm back recording a few episodes while I'm in Melbourne this week, this time with the fabulous Jeremy Watkins. Now, I just said to Jeremy, how would you like me to introduce yourself? But he's like, God, I don't know. (laughs) And then he said to me, I'm a leadership and performance expert. And then he said to me, I hold the space for people to grow so they can be the best version of themselves. That sounds a bit wanky. What does it really mean? <laughs>
1: oh, I love you, Mel. It's hilarious. Um, I also
0: didn't say that to him when he originally told me, but I did do a massive eye roll. Oh, I love it.
1: I love it. Put me on the spot as soon as we go live. That's, That's just it. Hilarious. That's it. No, I love it. Wow. So don't you hate that question, so what is it that you do? It kind of really, really, really gets to me, that kind of question. Not that I'm, I'm kind of laughing at Mel as we're kind of doing this, but... I think the more important question is actually who are you rather than what is it that you do because I reckon that what we do isn't so important.
0: Okay. What's your middle name?
1: Thomas. Thomas.
0: So what makes?
1: Thomas Richard. So in fact, I'm Jeremy Thomas Richard Watkins, so I'm Tom Dick. All I'm missing is Harry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what makes you tick? Tom Dick. Harry Watkins. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Actually, you know what really makes me tick? And this might sound a bit wanky, but that's but that's cool. When I work individually, one-on-one with people, or when I work with groups of people, what really, really makes me tick is when I suddenly see their eyes light up, when you've actually said something to them that's actually immediately had an impact on them. And that's whether that's one-on-one, whether that's with a team or a leadership team, or whether it's actually talking to a whole audience, you just get this light bulb moment where people's eyes suddenly light up and sometimes you get this light bulb moment where people suddenly look petrified as well because they've suddenly had a deep realization of something and maybe i'm a bit of a sadist but i kind of love that too because it means that they're really really learning and they're learning deeply and that's what i love about what i do in leadership and performance it's about deep learning i just hate all the shallow leadership stuff that's out there it just drives me nuts because it's not deeply human and it's not actually who we are and you can go get some training about stuff and really not learn anything but i think our role is to learn as much as we can about ourselves so that we can help other people learn as much they can about themselves so that they can then help others to grow and evolve and if that's not the definition of leadership then i don't know what is
0: yeah i like that and just coming back to your light bulb comment, that energy that I get when I'm speaking to an audience or even just one person, and you watch that light bulb go off in their head, is just such an incredible feeling of, I've said the right thing, yeah, and it's connected with you, yeah, and it's resonated, and hopefully now you'll go and take some action, yeah, around whatever it is that you've just realised.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and I think. I think that exists on so many different levels as well, I Hate, that um that part of the conversation because it because it's these light bulb moments that we've all had in our lives that have been defining and changed you. But I, I reckon through – it was, wasn't until I reckon I got to about 40 years old that I actually really started realising that these light bulb moments were happening for me all the time. <laughs> like, like Until, until I, I actually got, got to 40. I don't reckon I really even recognised any of them. I was that non-self-aware that there this is. important stuff was happening all around me and I didn't even notice it.
0: Are there any big ones in particular oh that my you're God. happy to share? Yeah,
1: yeah. One of the biggest moments I reckon that I've had in my journey – in life, I suppose, is when my father-in-law passed away. And I remember sitting with him in the hospital when he was actually kind of dying, and and then he went through the process of actually, you know, physically dying in front of us. It's a bit kind of, we're going straight there, but what struck me at that moment was peace and sadness all at the same time. It made me realize that you can actually live and have these things at the same time. And the freakiest moment after that, was actually just driving home when we'd actually left the hospital after he'd died. And the rest of the world was just carrying on and nobody knew and nobody cared. And and it suddenly makes you realize that we're on this world for a reason. And it really, really, really doesn't matter what other people think about what it is that you're doing. So long as you have deep, positive intentions behind everything that you do... Just let go of all the stuff that other people think because it's really not important as long as we know that we're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And I say to anybody who's doing that, just go after it as hard as you can because because life's fleeting.
0: It's remarkable how the death of a loved one can cause you to reprioritize what you're doing in the world.
1: Yeah, completely. Yeah. And the first part of that story actually is when Alan, which was his name, when Alan was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer, it was actually kind of on my 40th birthday. You know, I just said to you a couple of seconds ago, a couple of seconds ago, I said to you that this was, um, it was, it was around, sorry, it wasn't on my 40th birthday. It wasn't that dramatic, but it was quite close to it. So I then started a charity bike ride to raise awareness for prostate cancer and things like that. But the coincidental catalyst of that happening was the thing that suddenly woke me up, so I hope the listeners will understand what I'm saying here. This is not intended to sound kind of weird, but it's almost like him getting sick actually ended up being a really good thing for a lot of people because it's actually not freed his, it's not freed our mother in law at all because obviously that was a traumatic experience but She's now so strong as a beautiful lady that she is, and it gave me the courage and the guts to do the stuff that I knew I needed to do deep down. So it almost gave me permission. So it was this beautiful kind of experience, which was obviously traumatic and horrendous at the time, but when you kind of look back with hindsight, you kind of go, wow, that was a real defining moment.
0: Yeah, I've had similar. When my mum and dad died, they died 11 months apart. Yeah quite a few years ago now, and both unexpected deaths that couldn't have been foreseen, that was just such a massive catalyst for me as well. And and it was around my 40th birthday as well. Yeah. So my mother died when I was 40 my father when I was 41. And you think you have your parents forever. And it just made me realize life is really short, especially yeah. when, well, for both of them, they were alive and healthy one day and dead the next. Yeah. And It just made me realize, man, life really is short. If everything you do isn't something that you love or the means to getting you to something that you love, why are we doing it? And I know I made a lot of changes in my life at that time. And I was making them anyway because I turned 40 and there was a lot of shifting that was happening in my level of happiness and comfort. In the world, I made some big changes when I turned thirty in my life, and I made some big changes when I turned forty. And then, when Mum died and Dad died, there were even more changes. And I turned fifty in a few months. And oh, I can tell that this thinking what's, what's going to be what's next. Coming, what's coming <laughs> next? For, for sure. <laughs>
1: oh, my God, I love it. That's just hilarious. I think the message behind this is is really important because I don't want to go kind of deep in it and it feel dry. The point is, we see or choose to see all of these poignant moments, I think people always look for those, and obviously the ones that stick out are the ones that are dramatic. The interesting point that I've started noticing since then is that there are a truckload of those things that happen almost every single day, which actually can be a catalyst for change or a catalyst for you to look at something slightly differently. A lot of behavioural scientists say that we make up to 35,000 close-to-conscious decisions every day. And it's that's kind of, I talk about that in my book because it's if you actually start peeling that back a little bit and you go, okay, well, that's cool. That sounds like a lot of decisions. I'm kind of exhausted just talking about it. But but if I change by 0.01%, it means that I do 35 different things every single day. So even if you go 0.0001%, you're still doing three and a half new things every single day you translate that over the space of a year, it's a massive amount of change that you can create. So I think a lot of the time we shoot for these really, really big high goals that are 12 months out, and we're not actually looking at these really small micro moments that are so fundamentally important that actually, even if it's something as stupid as, I don't know, do I have that piece of chocolate cake or do I have another coffee in my addiction phase that I'm going through at the moment with coffee? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, we're sitting here but, drinking tea yeah. as well, so um, I don't know how that fits into your coffee addiction. <laughs> yeah, that's only because you didn't have any
1: coffee.
0: <laughs> I do have uh, some chocolate. Would you like some? <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I chocolate, chocolate cake. cake yeah, <laughs> um, but, but I think the point is that, it's all these little decisions that we make are the things that actually lead to the macro moments. And these little decisions are the things that are catalysts to change. So people kind of like go, oh, I don't have the energy to change. And with love, I kind of like go, well, I'm sorry, but that's complete rubbish. Because you can change lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff without it having to be that significant and burdensome. That's the problem, is that we don't make these changes. Because you go, oh, well, that won't make an impact. I'm going, yeah, but- it's kind of logarithmic and it builds up really fast when you start implementing change on top of change on top of change. It goes really quickly. So this is the work that I do with people is to kind of start building what I call cadence for change, which is actually you can't get into riding a bicycle really fast in the high gear. It's just really hard work and you pedal really slowly and it takes ages to build up speed. Whereas if you're in a low gear and you just focus on building up your cadence and spinning your legs really quickly, you speed up super fast. But most people try and do it the hard way. Whereas I go, no, stop the hard way. Let's things easy. I'm all about making things easy. So let's make things easy. Do the small changes and the quick changes fast.
0: You build up cadence. And then on the flip side – I guess you can also talk to people about how do you systemize some of the things that you're doing to give you more energy for changing those other things that are important. Yeah. So how do you systemize, you know, like Steve Jobs used to wear the same kind of clothes every day. Barack Obama wore either a blue suit or a black suit every day. He was in the Oval Office because he said, that's one less thing I have to think about, one less decision I have to make. A lot of people I know have the same thing for breakfast and lunch every day. So that's they can do that on autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. So systemizing some of those things, I think, might free up your mind or give you more clarity around they're not important, they don't need to change. I can do one little thing differently. Yeah, absolutely. And it might be, I don't know, some other habit that they're wanting to create or embed or some other way that they're wanting to shake up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think a really cool way to look at this, first off, is to getting some level of awareness as to actually what's going on first. So... What a lot of people will do, I believe, and I normally notice it, is people dive into like a change process, but what they haven't actually done is really develop some data and built up some awareness of actually what's happening for them. So, you know, I talk about vitality all the time, about balancing physical, mental and emotional energy so that we can actually do the stuff that we need to do. And that's fundamentally important. The only way that we know where we're at physically, mentally and emotionally is if we actually pause start tracking some stuff to create some real data to know what are the things that are actually boosting my energy, what are the things that are draining my energy, start tracking what am I eating on a daily basis, what am I drinking, and all the stuff that we know that we're supposed to do, but nobody actually bothers to do it. And doing that was one of the big catalysts for change for me.
0: So it's easy to track things like what you eat, what you drink, how much sleep you get, how much you exercise. What can we track and how do we track things that are more emotional or less tangible? Yeah.
1: Maybe for me, that's quite an easy thing to do. I'm quite a high emotional kinesthetic. So I'm very connected, I think, to what is going on within me. I never used to be. interesting when I used to work in high level corporate, I used to be probably a Very disconnected, I would say. I was probably quite ruthless in the way that I approach things. And it kind of makes me feel sick even thinking about it now. But but tracking things like emotional energy, it's actually just a deep sense that you can gauge. So I I actually get people to get into a bit of productive struggle about tracking it. Because there's there's no real science, I don't reckon, behind this. This is a bit more of a personal art form. So if you try and create this set of criteria, I think you find it really hard and you pigeonhole so you don't experience what's actually going on. So the whole backup behind the whole idea of Vitality for me is that about 18 months to two years ago, I completely burnt myself out. So I knew I needed to design a way Isn't that the classic irony of a leadership and performance dude that actually ends up at a point of complete and utter burnout? But I
0: think that's what makes you better and what makes you good at what you do because you've got the personal experience. Absolutely. And so you can genuinely have empathy for your clients who are teetering on the brink or who don't want to be on that brink.
1: And it's a beautiful gift to have because you can see it in people like I, I can now see it from a million miles away. I can feel it in people. I can see it in people. I can hear it in the way that they are. Um, but, but for me, what I needed to do was I needed to go back to basics and actually just track stuff. So I would literally give myself a score. Like you can download, you can download this tool from my website, which I'll give you a bit later on. But I would track myself about six or seven times during the day. So when I first wake up, and, and then I actually, I kind of wake up before I wake up. So, you know, there's this close to conscious, I'm not actually awake, but I know and I could feel how I am physically, mentally and emotionally before I'm up. And Mel Robbins talks about the five second rule. And she talks about that a lot of saying, you've got five seconds from that moment that you wake up to decide what the rest of your day is actually going to be like. But I think quite a lot of people who are struggling in that space in terms of physical, mental and emotional energy, it takes them a long time to get out of bed. And actually then the brain starts processing and then what actually happens is if you're not in a good space, the cortisol levels actually kick in immediately and I could actually feel that happening through my body. So I needed to create a break state to make sure that I get up and do something straight away. And for me, that happens to be physical. So I get up and immediately do physical exercise in the morning. And I still do it to this day because it's now become a habit, which is a ritual, which is actually something that's just deeply ingrained into what I do. It doesn't matter. But then but I would literally give myself a score from 1 to 10 across each of those things. How am I feeling physically? Like in the morning, would I feel weak or would I feel strong? And it doesn't really matter because you learn to describe things. So I give myself a score from 1 to 10, but then just write down a word that comes to mind. So like mentally, it might be when I was coming out of um, burnout, I would wake up really foggy. So I would give myself like a 3 out of 10 for my mental energy and kind of go, no, I'm foggy. And emotionally, a lot of it, which is why this podcast is brilliant, because a lot of it would be about feeling kind of disconnected. I couldn't really feel my heart. I couldn't feel my emotions. So the words I would use when I first started coming out of that is empty and and just words that are emotive and mean something, but they don't have to be within this criteria, ranking and rating because it's all different for different people. And then I would track that energy like five or six or seven different times during the day so that you go – Oh, hold on a second. If I now drink a coffee, this is what happens. And I get an energy boost. And actually what happens then mentally is I become clearer. And emotionally, that still doesn't help me emotionally. So you can start to piece together the jigsaw puzzle, which is all the stuff that you are doing with your own data. And sometimes it's complicated and you need help with it. But it's just to start tracking that kind of stuff. And And I still do it literally to this day every single day because it's just a brilliant thing to do. And it's just a great habit. And it's always in a notepad. I never, ever, ever do it. Lots of people have said, Why don't you create an app for that? And I was kind of going, like, No, because I don't want to be even more disconnected onto electronics. I want to do it in a book. I do it in a moleskin with a specific pen. That's the only thing I use those books for. And that's when I start working with clients. That's the first thing I give. Here's a notebook. Learn to write again. Get out of apps. Make sure that we get onto that kind of stuff and start tracking things and, and, looking at what it is you do. But it's really just about self-leadership and making decisions about how connected you want to be to yourself so that you can then start to share that with other people. That's kind of what it comes down to.
0: Yeah, I like that. I'm one of those people who wakes up in the morning and I can hit snooze 11 times before I get up. And so my alarm can go off at 6 or 6.30 and I'll get up an hour later and I'll just hit snooze, snooze, snooze. I don't want to be that person, but I don't know how to break that cycle. What can I do?
1: Do you really want to break the cycle? Yeah, I do.
0: Because I get up and I think, fuck, I've wasted a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah. And I've got all these things to do.
1: The most incredible thing, hey, is that the biggest part of change actually starts with making a decision. And the interesting part of that is that sounds like that sounds like the biggest truism on the planet, doesn't it? About, you know, we need to make a change. I'm writing
0: this down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we need to make a decision. But actually coming to that point of Actually, making a decision that's true and real and deep and meaningful is actually quite hard. A lot of people will say, Oh, yeah, I've decided to do this. And I've kind of got a bit of a BS meter that I run through myself whenever I'm mentoring clients. And I tell people, I'm, I'm going to call bullshit when I don't think you're actually telling me the truth. And I said, Sometimes it will be completely wrong, and that's cool, but I will be able to kind of tell and challenge you in a way that you say that you've decided to not do this. And I will go, have you really deeply decided or do you think you've decided? Or do you think it would be nice to decide that that's what I'm going to do? Because there's a very big difference between actually making the decision and kind of thinking that you've made the decision that you think you want to do that. If you understand what I mean, that's kind of quite deep, but it's very important as a distinction. So, The snooze button, I reckon the snooze buttons on alarms should have been destroyed. (laughs) There's a really great hack that you can use that will absolutely piss you off, but it works, is that you get one of those stupid bloody alarm clocks that are really, really, really loud and put it somewhere that you have to get out of bed to go turn the bloody thing off. Because by the time you've got there, you're already up.
0: So I've done that a few times. I've put my phone in the bathroom so that I've had to get up to turn it off.
1: Yeah. But it's still your phone.
0: Yeah. And I advocate for getting phones out of the bedroom, but yeah. mine's in the bedroom still. And yeah. I need to just go and buy one of those bloody alarm clocks. That, yeah. The ringer and
1: And I think another interesting question to ask as well is do you really need an alarm to wake up? Because the funny thing for me is, and, and I'm not saying that I'm the guru in sleep and wake up and all that kind of stuff, but I absolutely have a rhythm of how my body operates. Like I wake up at 5 a.m. every day and I now, as soon as I wake up, because if I don't, then my brain goes into immediate overload and my mental energy drops because I start thinking about all the things that I need to do that day, which is normally quite a lot of stuff. And that I've realized over time is not healthy for me. So as soon as my body wakes up in the rhythm that my body wakes up, I do set an alarm, but I'm always up before it.
0: So I don't need to set an alarm every day. But I travel and I have early flights every now and then.
1: Yeah, I was up at 3.30 this morning. <laughs> I was
0: not. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some mornings. There's probably three mornings a week where I need to have an alarm and the others I set one just so that I get up at a decent time. Yeah. yeah. I go to bed at a good time. I go to bed ten ten thirty. Yeah. So I technically am in bed for eight hours. Yeah. yeah. But also going through menopause, I have very broken sleep patterns. And I'm frequently awake between three and four or five, probably two or three times a week. And often I'll get up and do stuff and then go back to bed for another hour or two and set my alarm so that I get up. And often I'll just get up and stay up and go to bed earlier the next night.
1: And there's also things that are happening, you know, you know, we were kind of making the joke about what's happening when I kinda of turn fifty and things like that, is that I've got a bit of a premonition, I reckon, that's gonna what's gonna happen for you with your fifty is that I reckon your level of physical activity will probably increase quite dramatically because what you're already doing is I I already know that you're doing a whole bunch more physical physical exercise and you're a high intellectual person as well. You do a whole bunch of thinking and a whole bunch of emotional connecting. So if you look at my triangle, if I were to be – if I were mentoring right now, which I'm not, but if I were mentoring right now knowing Melba in the way that I do, I would be going – Which is the bit that you feel is out of balance and I know what you're going to say to me is the answer is and that will be one of the biggest things that has an impact on sleep patterns and getting rid of the snooze alarm because the higher level of exercise that we can build in and I don't mean smashing it out in a gym necessarily, it's just doing stuff that gives us joy I hate the concept of people exercising just because they do it and they hate it. It's probably actually worse for you.
0: Yeah, I hate exercise for the sake of it. yeah. Yeah.
1: Whereas if you do stuff that brings you deep joy whilst you're doing it, then actually exercising doesn't become exercise. It's like you and I have both spoken about whether we feel like we actually work or not. I don't feel like I work. I don't go in inverted commas to work anymore. I happen to be choosing that this is what I choose to do on a daily basis, working with the people that I choose to work with, and typically, there's some kind of remuneration that, that happens about that, which is kind of how then the work bit gets into it because someone pays you to do it. If you throw away the concept of work or throw away the concept that exercises work or hard work, then suddenly you free up the possibilities for a whole bunch of other things. So the snooze alarm thing's classic. But I would say if you really come back to that, I would ask yourself a really deep question and go, have you really actually truly decided that you want to get rid of that or not? Mm. (laughs) 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 I feel like my
0: bed. It is cold in Brisbane still in the mornings. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody who's not in Brisbane is going to be laughing at that. (laughs) (laughs) We're in in Melbourne right at the (laughs) moment. It's not exactly boiling in. Four degrees this morning. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) But you're right. I see a personal trainer twice a week and – At first, I was really, not anxious, but did it because I felt that I had to. Yeah. And now I love it. And it's because I don't, she doesn't, it's not like I'm exercising, even though I can barely lift my arms above my head when I finish a half an hour with her. But we just laugh the whole time. She's become a good friend. And we just talk about the good, the bad and the ugly of the week that's passed and what we're doing over the next few days before we see each other again. And it's just 30 minutes goes like five.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that, Mel, is really what this podcast is all about. That That's about connection. It's almost don't think about what it is that you're doing. It's think about who you're being and think about what that actually means. When you're actually going through the motions of doing what we do on a daily basis, it can be really kind of transactional. Yeah. Unless we're doing kind of work that's very deep and quite personal and very transformational, which is where uh, it's where I love to spend most of my time. Um, but my wife kind of keeps on telling me that I'm bit too much of a dreamer and I need to get out of this transformational world and just do some real stuff. Um, <laughs> which is cool. And, and that's something that I'm working on, but I've yet to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> I'll <laughs> well,
0: be It reminds me of when I quit my job to start consulting and my mother and my mother-in-law would always say to me, when are you going to go and get a real job? Oh, my God. And I had Hello. great delight, delight in just sliding right. into the conversation how much I'd earned in the first year of business when I was having a conversation with my mother-in-law and because she'd said something along the lines of, I don't think it's fair that Sean supports you and I'd earned quite a bit more than he had. Yeah. And I just had so much pleasure in just – saying, this is what I've done. And she just took a big step back mentally and emotionally and just said, what? I had no idea. I said, yeah, because you never listen. <laughs> and Isn't it interesting
1: how easy it is to lose connection with people? Yeah. And it's not intentional and sometimes it kind of just happens.
0: I think some people it is intentional. I think oh, some maybe. people genuinely don't like people and don't want to be connected. Yeah. And I wonder how that happens because when we're born, we all crave and immediately need connection. Like connection's inherent, an inherent need in all of us. Yeah. And so how does it get learned out of some people? Yeah, I'm not sure I actually really know the answer to that
1: question at all. What I reckon though is, you know, we were speaking about what we we're going to talk about here is I've started talking a lot more about love in, in business in, business, really, in recent, recent times. times.
0: How does that go down in the corporate world? when you talk about love? Well, actually,
1: as with everything, the first thing that you need to do is to make sure that you're kind of really understanding what you're trying to say for yourself first. And it took me a long time to get to the point of actually starting to introduce that concept because I was too worried about what I thought it meant within the corporate world. And remember now I've got to the point where I'm saying to you that having had that realisation with the way, and looking back again with hindsight, When I made the decision to start talking about that a little bit more, I actually went back to Alan in the bed in hospital just before he passed away. And I went, you know what, it really doesn't matter. To me, I'm not trying to put myself across as this high-performance leadership, even though most people would see me and go, well, yeah, you're a typical alpha male. I'm probably about as – I might physically look a little bit like that, but I'm about as far away from an alpha male as you can probably get. So it's actually a natural thing for me to want to do, to actually talk about love in business because love to me is connection and love takes courage and love's hard work. And love is you need all the fundamentals of how you operate and how you create strong bonded relationships to enable love to occur that shouldn't that be the most important thing we're talking about in business? Because that will create deep connection, which will create deep trust, which actually will allow people to be the best versions of themselves, which is actually what I think my truth of what I'm trying to find all the time is, and what I'm trying to help others find, is go what actually is the best version of you, not from a high performance perspective necessarily. That might be one of the outcomes that it leads to, that you might suddenly go rocking and do a whole bunch of really cool stuff. But it's actually to be at peace and within our power, which I think is the most important place that we can possibly be. And without love, I don't think that's possible. I think there would be this element of disconnection of, you know, someone say, oh, well, that person's heart's not in it. You go, that's what I think has happened in the corporate world.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is how, you know, people do business with people they know, love, and trust. And the usual way of that expression is know, like, and trust. And I think we need to go that step above like to love because when you love whatever it is, the person, the people, what you're doing, how you're serving people, what your purpose is, the world opens up a lot more to you. Like love is so much more powerful than like. And love leads to trust. Now, you're not going to trust everyone you love, but you usually love everyone you trust.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like that. I've never thought about it that way around. I like it. I think when you when you go deeply into what love is kind of all about, it's one of those things that's like super hard to define.
0: Yeah. I think because there's so many kinds of love. Yeah. You know, there's the love you have for a sibling or a parent or a child or a friend and then there's the love you have for a partner or a lover yeah. and then there's romantic love and there's sexual love and there's the love of chocolate <laughs> and coffee <laughs> And coffee. um no, there's the love of, of, of well it's
1: a love-hate relationship i've got going on. going on at the moment
0: that, and that's the other thing but i was going to say it's it. a fine line between love and addiction as well oh i didn't expect this conversation to go this way <laughs> Now <laughs> okay. we're going. There. haven't asked any of my questions on my list yet <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even asked you my first question. Um, We're (laughs) talking about it, We are talking about it. How do you – where's the line between love and addiction? Like where does love tip into addiction, whether it's a person, a thing, a behavior? Yeah.
1: Well, do you reckon is it about choice? Is actually love about choice and is addiction about choice?
0: No, and, I don't believe it is. I uh, believe addiction okay. is a chemical imbalance in your mind. Yeah. Because if you look at people who are addicted to Instagram, yeah. addicted to drugs, yeah. addicted to alcohol, caffeine, addicted to a person, and yes, at a very fundamental level, I guess you're choosing, like it's it, it's a decision that you make to have another drink, to chase after that woman, to click on Instagram. Yeah. But there's something in your brain that switches to that.
1: That's simply our laying down of our neurological pathways, hey, of creating the habit process. And, you know, most people have, well, a lot of people, if you haven't read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, it's a great way of explaining how that kind of stuff works. But to be really basic about it is that all our head brain does is actually work out Whether doing this activity is going to take more oxygen and burn more energy, so therefore I do this process. If it can find a way that's easier, which burns less oxygen and burns less energy, then the brain will take that lazy way because our brain is lazy. Mm. So you know when you change a habit, people say forming habits is hard? And forming habits is hard because it takes about five times more energy from our head brain to actually create that new habit. And then there's the time about how long it takes and people talk about anywhere between 21 and 99 days and I don't think there's any exact science and anyone who says there is, it's it's complete BS. I think it's all about how much of a habitualized person are you And how much work do you need to do before something becomes automatic? So you can't tell how long it's actually going to take. I don't think there's any proven science that can tell us that. But because we're making those up to 35,000 close to conscious decisions every day, we're making so many choices that we don't even really realize until we pause and deeply think about what it is that we're doing. So you know you were saying when you went through your 30s and you made all these big changes and you went through your 40s and you made these big changes and the next ones are coming. (laughs) 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 Sorry, (laughs) Sean. Um, (laughs) Those those will will be be made made up up of decisions which you will have more intentional, conscious control over. No, fuck it. This is what I'm going to do now. Bang. I've drawn the line in the sand. I've smacked my fist on the table. I'm actually going to do this. I'm actually going to decide. And then from that point, we start building habits around that. But until you've made that decision, I come back to what I was saying before, until you've actually truly deeply made that decision, I reckon that things are outside of our control. Which is maybe where love comes from because it's an emotive. It's a heartfelt energy, isn't it? Yes. So because it's a heartfelt energy, a habit is a head brain thing. But love is actually from our heart brain
0: which actually has a
1: different connection and a different set of neurological pathways. So, you know, it's been proven by neuroscience. We've got three brains, head, brain, heart, brain, gut, brain. They're proving the fourth one right at the moment, which for the guys, you can probably guess what that is. <laughs> um, and the girls are now getting really scared about that. But, um, but that's okay because guys do think down there sometimes, yeah? But again, sometimes that can get disconnected too. And, and the connection the between, between that and the heart, heart is sometimes is not, not there.
0: Absolutely. I think addiction is very different to a habit. Big style. Because a habit, you make a conscious decision to do something until it becomes unconscious. And maybe addiction is that next step. You know, Adam Alter wrote this amazing book called Irresistible, where he talks a lot about addiction and he talks about smartphone addiction and our addiction to technology and how the people who created the iPhone and the other smartphones and apps like Instagram studied hardcore drug addicts to find out how their brains work Wow. and they looked at what are the sounds, what are the sights, what are the lights, what are the colours, what are the fonts that will have you, that will more quickly easy. pull you in yeah. so that you want to keep looking again and again and again. And, you know, that's something that I find fascinating because I've spent hours scrolling aimlessly through Facebook or through Twitter or through Instagram on my phone yeah. and then stood up after what I thought was five minutes, but it's 55 minutes and thinking, what was the point? What did I even do? Yeah, And you just keep on scrolling, waiting for that next validation of what you posted to get that little hit.
1: Yeah. And that's the interesting and challenging thing around connection. And is that is that really connection? Is it addiction? What is the actual addiction? The perceived addiction is, is it's smartphone addiction. But the question is, what's the actual addiction? What's the thing that's actually underneath that? What's the deep need that we're actually trying to fulfill? Okay. Which actually is where the addiction, where, where addictions really come in is well, any addiction at any level. what it's just what the, the principle of it is, is to just fulfill a deep need that is currently not met. And what's wow. missing from your world and what is it you feel like you need? So the whole concept of things like Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that is right incredibly smart from a motivational perspective and also incredibly dangerous from a manipulation perspective. Not an intentional manipulation of, you know, who we are and what we're all about. However, it does link in. And I think a great recent example of that is Fortnite, the kid's video game. Like, so my son's 12 and he's absolutely into Fortnite. Sarah-Jane and I have had many conversations about concerns around whether that is uh, an addiction or an addictive behavior. And I'll back, I mean, he's not on it all the time, blah, 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 and I'm trying to be a good parent and all that kind of stuff, and it's not. So we have things that we do and things that we put in place to help him to make more informed decisions about how he's choosing to spend his time. Instead of putting rules in place to go, you can only do it for this amount of time, what we're actually trying to do is increase his conscious awareness of the decisions that he's making, the amount of time that he's actually spending on these things to help him understand that. And I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not, but it's the angle that we're taking. Is it reducing the amount of time he's having to spend on it? Well, yeah, probably. But he's consciously aware that he's making that choice. So it's not a habit. It's actually a choice. And he's aware that it's a choice. And that is when I believe you can keep control of something.
0: So a lot of 12-year-old boys wouldn't be capable of making that conscious choice.
1: No, we do sometimes have a little bit of a reminder of going, it's been an hour, you know, what
0: what do you think you're now going to do? And I think that's important. You can't be expected to understand how much time passes without a reminder, which is why things like Pomodoro Technique are so popular because it gives you that reminder of, okay, you've got to stop now. You've done.
1: And I think, you know, and that's the whole brilliance of how well these games are designed. I mean, you could talk about Fortnite, but we could do like a whole podcast series on Fortnite. I was
0: addicted to Angry Birds when it came out. Yeah. I played it for hours and hours and hours and hours.
1: Yeah, and it's designed by people that really do understand human motivation. Yes. And there's a bucket load of money that they spend on creating that to keep you in essentially a flow state so they keep you in a flow state of this big balance between high anxiety and high energy so that you are actually in an adrenalized situation without it being real when that goes to the next level with a whole bunch of the really really deep virtual reality games and stuff that is coming on that's where i kind of go wow how disconnected are we going to become as a human race that is something that I would like to think it worries me but right at the moment it interests me because what the potential for that is. I've got this big theory that if you think about when we created things like technology we had strategies that we adopted to make technology more effective so that technology could make our lives better. Yeah, so think about you know industrial revolution and all this kind of stuff if you remove technology just being a computer point of it was to increase efficiency. And my big question is at the moment is so we invented and adjusted bits of technology to essentially make our lives better and more effective, which was in service of the human. Where it feels like we are at the moment is that I'm wondering if that loop is being closed as to actually are we at the point where the technology is not actually in service of the human, but the human is now in service of the technology. So I reckon there's going to be a big next industrial revolution which is actually getting us back to core getting us back to who we are as human beings and we're going to realize that what we need to do is we need to invent pieces of technology that really do deeply help us not that on the surface we think deeply help us and i don't know what the products or anything look like but that's going to be where the deep smarts is going to come from and it's actually going to bring us closer back to being deeply connected humans, I reckon.
0: Yeah. And I think a great example of technology that was created to help us, which is now causing us pain, is email. Email was designed to help us connect more quickly and communicate in writing faster. And now there's such an over-reliance on it yeah. in most workplaces with the average office worker getting upwards of 200 emails a day. Yeah. How do we take a big step back from that? Yeah. Let alone smartphones and the expectation that we'll be on 24 yep. 7 that's not possible
1: so i think a lot of this will come back deeply to the way that we're working and if you think about how much work is going to be automated over the next five ten years and how many people aren't necessarily going to be working in the same roles that they're currently working in because technology will actually replace the need and stuff like that what is becoming very 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 apparent to me is that if we don't understand the human being and we don't understand how we can use all of the resources that we have available to us of both, say, physical, mental, and emotional, balance this vitality piece to keep ourselves in the best place, the thing that concerns me is that I reckon that technology will start running the humans rather than humans running the technology.
0: It already is. Technology already is. It does control our world. Just ask anybody who turns on their computer in the morning and opens up Outlook Microsoft Outlook, and email pops up. And then that's the first couple of hours of your day gone, responding to other people's urgency, and that controls you.
1: So then we go, so what's the future of leadership? You see, this is where I come in. The future of leadership are going to be the people who are bold enough Mm. to go, no, hold on, I need to self-lead myself first. I need to self-manage how I prioritize everything that I do and all the decisions that I make so that I can then help others to make those powerful decisions so that our world is not being run by other things, but we're getting back to running our worlds the way that we need to run them. Yeah. And I think that's going to be a step change. I think that will be a tipping point back to humans and human connection and love being one of the most powerful things that business should talk about. Mm. And people will work, and that actually will increase profits and revenues and all of that kind of stuff that corporates want.
0: Yeah, and there's some organizations that are really doing that. You know, there's some organizations that have got email free Fridays where you can't send an email on a Friday or receive an email. There's an autoresponder that says, We don't look at emails today. If what you want to talk to us about can't wait till Monday, here's my phone number. I'd love to have a chat. And those organizations are reporting that productivity is increasing because their relationships are improving. And that's leading to more revenue and more profit. And they're also saying that not only is the number of emails that they're sending and receiving declining on the on the Friday, it's having a shift for the rest of the week as well. Because people are thinking, oh, I don't only have to call people or walk around and talk to people on a Friday. I can do that every day. Yeah. And so the productivity benefits and the profit benefits are just growing in those organisations.
1: And I think if you think about what that really means, Mel, it just means that people are actually yet again coming back to basics about how do we work is that through that process, that that break state of how that works on a Friday, yeah. is people who are actually on the other end rather than going into default and automatic and immediately just sending an email, they need to make a choice. They need to make a decision about do I need to contact this person? Is this important? Is this truly a priority? So that we're starting to put the important things first again. Yeah. That is super empowering.
0: I was chatting to a mate this morning and he said whenever he thinks of something he needs to talk to one of his staff about, he writes it in OneNote and each of his direct reports has their own folder in OneNote or their own file in OneNote. And he writes, I have to talk to them about this and this and this. And so then he said, when I have my one-on-ones with them, which is once a week, I can just go down my list and it's saving me time. I don't need to email them every thought. He said it saves me probably 50 to 60 emails per week per person, and we just have a conversation, that, and it's 30 seconds for each one. Yeah. He said we're probably getting back you know, hours and hours collectively each week.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you see there's smart ways and there's very sensible ways that building connection and building deeper connection and deeper relationships with people the immediate benefit is absolutely there but what it needs is it needs people to step back a little bit and be open and think a bit more deeply not unconsciously about what are we really doing how could we really make things better how can we really improve however confronting that decision might be of recognizing ah, that means that I can't just shoot off an email. I've got to think about this stuff. But That's great. Yeah. Now, but we do need to be wary that they. it might feel like there's a drop in performance at that point. But that is actually my point that is to why we need to go there so that we can have deep learning so that we can then get back on a trajectory to the next level of performance that we go to. And yeah, that absolutely. will build sustainability. Exactly.
0: Now, I'm just noticing the time and we've just about run out. Oh, my God, already. I that happen? I know. Chat, chat, chat. <laughs> <laughs> What's something that you do to become more connectable?
1: The thing I love doing most is I love talking to big groups and I love talking to big audiences. And I like to be very, very, very available to that. So what I do when I make sure I speak at a conference and things like that is that I'm always there way, way, way before and spend a lot of time there before and a lot of time there afterwards so that people can actually – so I'm available to people to come and talk to me and, and connect with me and and but actually in the flesh rather than kind of going, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or find me here and go to my website and LinkedIn in even though you can if you want to. But the connection piece – I think it feels like it needs to be deep and real and meaningful. So I love to have meaningful conversations with people. That's kind of how I make myself more connectable. And do you know what? I smile as much as I can, is actually what I do. It sounds a bit weird, but I think actually smiling at people and actually just randomly sometimes talking to people is a cool thing. And it means your energy is always out. So how I focus on connection is that my energy and my attention is pretty much always out unless I'm in a place of deep thinking when my energy and my thinking is kind of going in for a bit. But I always are checking when I do my physical, mental and emotional check-ins, one of the things that I'm checking for myself is am I spending my time with my energy out and is what I'm doing in deep service of other people If not, pause, stop, get back into thinking about other people so you're not thinking about yourself. That, to me, is what connection is, is when we're thinking about others, we're not thinking about ourselves.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. Is there a book or a podcast that has really resonated with you?
1: I love you gave me that question. I'm going to answer that from a couple of really different angles. Yes, and it's probably not what you're expecting. Being slightly anti-establishment, one of my favourite books that I've read that I give a lot of my... um, Mentees to read is Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, who's the guy who started Patagonia, the clothing company. The subtitle of his book is The Accidental or The Story of an Accidental Businessman or something like that. So he never went into business to grow a business, he just happened to start making climbing equipment that people was great quality and people kind of wanted and then started asking more of. But he was only making that stuff so that he could go climbing. So it was deeply driven by passion and helping his specific industry. And then the story of how it evolves, and I'll do a bit of a spoiler alert thing. He talks about him doing his MBA all the time. And I kind of like, when I first started reading it, I was going, oh, God, here we go. And he just sport every illusion that I had about what this story was going to until he went MBA, and his MBA stands for Management by Absence. So it should be LBA, leadership by absence, I reckon, so I'll change his words. But what he makes sure, and some of his biggest lessons that he has in this book is that the way that he allows his business to grow is by him getting out of the way. And the way that he can be the most inspired leader is by being a leader by him not actually being present. I don't mean present as in kind of grounded present, but by him not being actually in the building. He's leading much more powerfully when he's at the top of a mountain testing out the new gear that the people have just been working really hard on a project to do, and he sends them back some powerful critiquing of what this stuff's actually all about and how great it is or what the problems are. That's when he's in his version of deep leadership. So to me, that book is so much about you need to be. It's not a nicety to be unique and authentic. It's an absolute fundamental. And when you don't, as you'll find out if you read this book, then shit goes wrong.
0: Yeah. But I think when you're not there as a leader, that instills, that shows a lot of trust in your people that you trust them to make the right decisions or to just make decisions to move things forward in yeah. your absence. Yeah. And I think too many leaders, and I use the word leader very loosely as I <laughs> describe this, <laughs> too many people with people with direct reports, want to control everything. And I worked with a guy years ago and he very proudly said to me, all of my leadership team are in Melbourne. And I said, why? And he said, so I can keep an eye on them. And I said, but you're a global business, you're a national business. Why would you want all of your leaders in the one city? Mm -hmm. You should have them spread around the country because your customers are all around the country and you've got offices in 27 cities. And he couldn't understand why I was so concerned that they were all in the one spot
1: yeah and I think with globalization and I think with how we go about doing what we need to do Brené Brown talks about the fact that leadership is powerful when you're leading when you're not actually in the presence of the other person so it's actually when your aura when your sense of, of when you're there and I know that I've had powerful mentors that I think about that I know that are with me even when they're not with me And their presence is kind of there. It sounds like a bit like a Yoda kind of thing, doesn't it? Or Darth (laughs) Vader is Luke, I can feel your presence. But But that that actually, I reckon, reckon is what's true and real. And it's very different because that, again, that's about connection, isn't it? It's about real connection. So that's one of my favorite books, and I give it to lots and lots of people. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. And another one which is kind of good, which is kind of in line with my whole barefoot story is called called Born to Run Run by Christopher McDougall. Born to Run is the story of the Tara Umara people from Mexico who actually can run barefoot these incredible distances and they can run like 400 kilometers at a time without stopping and things like that. The story about me being the barefoot leader really is about me stuffing up my feet because I used to run a lot to relieve stress when I was in corporate. So I would come home and I would smash myself and I completely stuffed my knees. And I had to have surgery on both of my knees and then I'm, and then all the physios and stuff to me were saying, oh, well, you might as well give away running, you're kind of 40 and stuff like that. And then I met a guy called JP and he taught me how to do barefoot running. So I became really kind of interested in this concept of barefoot running it's more natural running as people call it, because it's not always without shoes. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And this book kind of really made me think deeply about what is culture and what are we trying to do and these kind of things and how, what impact are we having and should we race and shouldn't we race? So there's like this really cool tension in this book that gets, that got me thinking about a whole bunch of different things. So a lot of the books that I recommend from my side are very kind of unique. And if you're not a runner, you might think it's rubbish, but there's a deep story behind it and they're great reads. Mm. And there's another one. So most of mine are kind of outdoorsy stuff. I could talk about the business ones, but these are the ones that I think are really interesting stories. And the other one that I really love is Pete Goss's book, Close to the Wind. So Pete Goss is basically an adventurer sailor who in the Vendee Globe back in the 90s actually rescued a French sailor pretty much from imminent death whilst he was leading a race but he had to turn around and go back into like hurricane force winds for three days to go and rescue him and it got him a knighthood and all this kind of stuff and he talks about where he was just about to turn and go rescue this guy or try and even find him which is like looking for a needle in a haystack in the middle of the southern ocean with these waves everywhere and stuff like that and he was just sending a fax to his wife because he knew by him turning around that he was actually going into a dangerous place and he might not go back and he ends with this really really powerful quote as he goes complacency is the cancer of our time if something's worth doing do it now tomorrow is too late
0: i feel like we should end on that that's very profound i love that yeah thanks so we'll leave you with that. I've got goosebumps now. Hold on, quickly before we go, where can people find you? I almost don't
1: want to talk about that now. It was too powerful an ending. Um, <laughs> you can go find all my stuff at www.jeremywatkins.com.au. You can download my book Insight for free there. There's a thing called the Vitality Tracker on there, which was the awareness tool that I was telling you about. So you can download all that kind of stuff for free. You don't have to buy stuff. So you can read, download my book, read my book, and coming up quite soon, there'll be some white papers and stuff like that talking about this kind of stuff that we've been talking about today. And Jeremy's book is great. <laughs>
0: Thank it's you very much. great. I read yes. an early copy. and I yes. read a recent copy. And awesome. I read it again the other day in pre- yeah. preparation for this and didn't get to ask any of my questions because we went off on a different <laughs> tangent.
1: It's becoming a bit of a go-to leadership book, actually. Awesome. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's really exciting.
0: I'm waiting for my first guest to tell me that the book that's had the biggest impact on them is by Jeremy Walker. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, that's definitely a place to finish. <laughs> I will let you know. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody. Pleasure. Talk to you soon. See you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn, or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Melkettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.